That's what Berkeley Earth enables us to do, to make rational decisions to get to saving the planet. Welcome to the Berkeley Earth interview series. Berkeley Earth is an independent, California-based nonprofit focused on environmental data science. Berkeley Earth supplies comprehensive open source, air pollution data, and highly user accessible global temperature data that is timely, impartial, and verified. Our findings have been featured in peer-reviewed scientific journals, UN climate reporting, and in leading global media outlets, including the Washington Post and the New York Times. To learn more about how you can support independent climate science, visit us at berkeleyearth.org. Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this initial episode of the Berkeley Earth interview series. Today, we will be in conversation with Bill Shireman. Bill is an environmental activist and co-author of the book, In This Together, How Republicans, Democrats, Capitalists, and Activists Are Uniting to Tackle Climate Change and More. And he's also co-founder of the grassroots political organization of the same name, In This Together America. Uh, and they're working to build coalitions of solutions-oriented candidates and voters specifically focused on environmental and climate change issues. He's also the president and CEO of Future 500, a nonprofit global consultancy that builds trust between companies, advocates, investors, and philanthropists to advance business as a force for good. Bill is a master of environmental entrepreneurism and an advocate of technology and innovation as drivers for green growth. He's also currently on the board of directors for Berkeley Earth, and we are thrilled to have him with us as our guest today. So let's get into the interview. Can you just go ahead and give us an introduction to In This Together uh, and the work that you're trying to do with that organization? Sure, sure. In This Together grew out of a, um, uh, uh, really a friendship between me and uh, Trammell Crow, a longtime Dallas uh, property developer who is also a strong environmentalist and like me, a rare uh, green Republican. Uh, uh, kind of old school Republican, maybe really old school now, I don't know, uh, you know, the Abraham Lincoln Republican types. And um, we uh, uh, have grown frustrated over the years to see the environment turned into a partisan uh, tool for exploitation and, and uh, driving voters in, into opposite camps. So we hold, held a donor roundtable about a year and a half ago to bring together uh, Republican donors, uh, Democratic donors, independents, and others to say, let's, you know, change the game here. Let's uh, begin to work across the aisle, not spend so much money fighting each other, but spend more time and money uh, uh, advocating what we can do together. And that's where In This Together came from. It is a, a, a noble, I think, effort by frustrated Republican and Democrats uh, who want to shift our time, our votes and our money to uh, solving problems, starting with uh, the environment. We see the enemy uh, 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 not so much, or the environmental campaign, not so much as a battle between environmental activists and let's say big oil, big coal, uh, big corporations, but as a battle of all of us with the political and media industry, an industry that whether it you know, knows it, understands it, you know, planned it or not, an industry that fans the flames of fear and hate between 
the left and the right and makes us think that we are our enemies when we are actually allies. In this together is our campaign. It is something that uh, I'm, I'm a volunteer and donor. All of us are volunteers and donors for this. And our objective is 5 million folks across the country, Republicans, Democrats, independents, and decline to hates to support protecting the environment together. Awesome. I imagine that convening this first round table um, came with some challenges trying to propose this idea to a number of different voters. Um, one of the kind of phrases that you mention a lot um, in the book is problem solvers, not polarizers. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping you can maybe talk a little bit about what that looks like and maybe how you go about approaching those very different groups and very segmented groups to kind of bring everyone together. Sure. Yeah. Well, we have a, you know, it, human beings naturally uh, uh, divide into different groups. That diversity is a part of what makes our, our species, our civilizations so, uh, uh, so enduring. Uh, but our political system has become gamed uh, by manipulating these, you know, really natural instincts that, uh, that different people have. Uh, the, the, the left, the political left, uh, I like to call them the liberators because they want to liberate people to accomplish all that is possible inside us. And I call the political right, the protectors, because they want to, they want to assure that we're protecting what we've got. Uh, you know, the, the important gains that we've made together. Those are a really functional duo protect what we have and liberate our potential to do and be even more. But unfortunately, it's very profitable in politics and media to take the, the most dedicated champions of either liberation or protection and, uh, and take the worst things that they say, the most insulting, you know, awful things that they say and, uh, and broadcast them uh, uh, to the other side. So we now live inside one of two media echo chambers. Uh, if we're on the left, we live in an echo chamber where we are blasted with the very worst ideas from the right and the most despicable people and statements from the right. And if we're on the right, we are immersed in a world where we hear only the most arrogant and uh, empty-headed ideas and claims of the left. And so each of us thinks that the world out there consists of reasonable people on our side and crazy people on the other side. That is very profitable in politics. It makes it easy to corral voters and to know which party they're gonna vote for. The only thing is getting people to vote and that's where all the money goes. We gotta get these people to the polls, uh, either the scared, or the or the um, the extremists to the polls, and it's profitable for the media because we have these nice cohesive blocks of voters and people that think the same, and so we can sell stuff to them very efficiently. But it's really tragic for democracy, and it divides the seventy percent of us who are actually reasonable from the left and the right and can work out our problems. It divides us into these separate chambers. That is very convenient for the political industry because the political industry of lobbyists and, and campaign consultants and pollsters and so on, 
their power is maximized when there's no majority that can, uh, that can dictate policy. So with the left and right battling each other, the political industry is pretty much able to control the flow and manage the flow of policy, which allows them to extract more money from vested interests to keep things pretty much the way they are. Uh, and that's tragic. So we've, we've activated the public. We've energized the extremes. People are angry. Uh, they blame each other. And meanwhile, all of that is helping to support an extremist uh, uh, status quo uh, 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 industry uh, that keeps us from actually solving problems like climate change, COVID, overspending, criminal justice uh, problems, uh, uh, failing schools, growing homelessness, you know, all these things are accumulating because, uh, because we are so divided. So <laughs> that's a long, a long way of saying, we gotta shift our focus from polarizers to the problem solvers that are across that broad 70%. That's what we're trying to do. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, just existing in the media world that we do, and especially having just gone through an election cycle, hearing that, that there's 70% of voters out there who are more or less within the same um, parameters that maybe have some yeah. differences, but want to come together. I think mm -hmm. that's, that's incomprehensible almost. It's refreshing. And, yeah. it, and it doesn't seem like it could possibly be real, right? Because we're all yeah. in this world where, oh my God, everybody, and we're having you know disputes with our families and so on. But the reality is that when people actually engage across the aisle, 70% readily come to uh, solutions to problems. It doesn't mean they completely agree on all right. things. You know, conservatives right. are real and progressives are real. They have real differences, but their differences are not so irreconcilable once they're actually able to listen to each other and realize that conservatives are just trying to protect what's really valuable and progressives are just trying to release what's really possible. Berkeley Earth is a data-based organization. And I think when we hear that number 70%, um, that's wonderful data that we're 70% more or less want to come together and agree. I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit maybe about the data that, that you have behind that number and kind of how you came to yeah. that. Yeah, well, there's a variety of sources of data that, uh, that support that. Uh, first, you look at polling. Now, polling has lots of, lots of limits and problems to it because traditionally polling doesn't allow for people to actually evolve their thoughts in conversation with each other. It, uh, uh, it, it is a, an expression of what somebody's whim or view is uh, without, uh, without much reflection. Nevertheless, even if you look at uh, the, the top four uh, wedge issues, the ones that are explicitly used to exploit and divide us. Uh, those are abortion, guns, immigration, and climate. Those are the big four. Even if you look there, you'll see that in the middle on all those issues is about 60 or 70% of folks who are in relatively close agreement. You have some folks at the extreme of the abortion debate, for example, some who say, uh, uh, abortion should be allowed up until the very moment of birth. I mean, there are people who believe that. Uh, uh, and, uh, and then there are people who think that abortion should never, ever happen under any circumstances at any time, no matter what. 
those are at the extremes. Yeah, you know, I respect both of those views. I understand where they're where they're coming from. Uh, I, I do have some problems with them, but but in the middle, seventy percent or so uh, believe that abortion should be legal in some cases and illegal in others, and uh, the, and the differences are not that hard to work out. Uh, 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 same is true in gun control. It's closer to 80% in gun control. Mm -hmm. In immigration, very clearly 70%. Uh, and certainly on climate and the environment, we easily can bring 70% together. So that's just on the polling. Now, when we actually engage people in processes like deliberative polling, uh, pioneered by Stanford University, uh, 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 we find that uh, as people learn about an issue, they grow closer together. They get perspectives on that issue. And over time, you, you can bring support from 50, 60 to 70% or more readily for solutions. That requires that people actually engage. And if we all hate each other so intensely that we can't even stomach talking to each other, we don't engage and we don't find those solutions. So that's the challenge that we find right then. And then, you know, the third area of, of support for this is, is the experience of Future 500, the organization that, uh, that I've been privileged to, to run for a quarter century. We bring stakeholders together from all sides uh, and consistently we find that at least seven out of 10 of the people in the room, even people that are passionate about their issues across corporate boundaries and partisan boundaries uh, uh, can find solutions that that actually, in most cases, deliver more than their demands in the first place. Uh, so uh, uh, that 70% is something that we find, but we only find it when we engage. Yeah, when you look for it, absolutely. Yeah. Coming back to a point of engagement, um, let's look at a specific issue, which is we hear a lot about, and that's burning fossil fuels. Um, mm -hmm. One of Berkeley Earth's major areas of research right now is air pollution. Um, and back mm -hmm. in 2015, 2016, Berkeley Earth did quite a bit of research on air pollution in China, um, trying to quantify mm -hmm. the health impacts of that. Um, you know, amongst their findings was that, you know, air pollution is responsible for an incredible number of deaths every year in China, you know, somewhere between, let's, let me get the exact number here, 700,000 and 2.2 million um, annual deaths just for air pollution, uh, PM 2.5 air pollution, which has been linked to a number of different respiratory and cardiac and other health issues. One of the recommendations that came out of that study was that China should shift from burning coal as a fossil fuel to incorporating some other sources of energy such as natural gas. Um, and that burning natural gas could help not only mitigate greenhouse gas emissions, but could also help the air pollution issue. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. However, in the, in the U.S. here, we hear a lot about uh, natural <laughs> gas. It's a very contentious issue. Um, mm -hmm. It has supporters and detractors that tend to fall along party lines. Yeah. So I think, you know, in your, your book also had quite a bit on this, the keep it in the ground chapter. Mm -hmm. uh, where you kind of um, took apart that argument that we usually hear on the part of the left. Um, yeah. We, can't, we yeah. can't extract these fossil fuels and so on and so forth. So I think this is kind of a big framing lead into probably a number of questions, but let's just look at fossil fuels and specifically natural gas for a second. Through the lens yeah. of this together, 
how would you kind of approach coming together around this particular issue? Um, and maybe what are some of the issues that come out of that? Yeah, well, it's perfectly natural for people at, at first blush to say, look, we've got to get out, got to get away from carbon emissions because they're destroying the climate and they come from fossil fuels and therefore we've got to get rid of fossil fuels. That's a logical sequence of thoughts. Uh, the challenge comes when you make an absolute, you kind of turn this simple idea that might work well for you and for your household or for your company, or, you know, and then you say, we're going to do this everywhere, always. And uh, 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 it's an easy political statement to make. It's reinforced by polarizers, you know, on the left right now. Uh, but it really doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because the world is very diverse. If we haven't, you know, if we haven't noticed that ecosystems are very diverse, economies are very diverse and the world doesn't health in a healthy way change from a polyculture to a monoculture from, from having a variety of options to having only one option. If we were to have banned let's say fracking or natural gas a few years ago, our carbon footprint right now would be much higher than it is today because uh, as you know, energy uh, industry folks are, you know, love to point out, uh, it has been the shift from carbon, uh, from coal to natural gas that has driven much of the reduction in carbon footprint in the US. Uh, fracking, and natural gas have been very positive forces for driving down carbon footprint. And groups like Berkeley Earth uh, and the excellent uh, research and data that you, you folks provide in a very non-ideological way uh, is part of what has demonstrated this. Now, does that mean we should be, you know, ever expanding our use of natural gas? Probably not. Uh, you know, the, the environmentalists are right. But we can gradually uh, and really quite quickly phase down use of fossil fuels across the board, focusing first on carbon intensity. And that's why in our, in our community, we support things like a price on carbon, uh, which MIT's uh, analyses show is the fastest way to drive down carbon emissions. Uh, and uh, particularly coupled with other policies that clean up natural gas, for example, by controlling for methane emissions, uh, and that assure that uh, we are sequestering as much carbon as possible. Uh, uh, you put these things together, price signals that drive down carbon across the board, so you're going to get much quicker reductions in, car in coal and in oil than in natural gas, and much quicker advancements in solar and wind, and perhaps nuclear, because they are carbon free, uh, that's how you get the job done. It doesn't work, you know, keeping it in the ground is a great slogan. It's a great slogan. But in the real world, uh, we got to keep carbon out of the atmosphere. And the way to do that is with a more nuanced set of policies. And I, I think you, you mentioned something in there, which was sort of the, um, the technology, perhaps that's going to drive this forward, um, mm -hmm. you know, incorporating methane reduction and, and sequestering carbon and things like that. 
processes that are made possible by advancements in technology. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's probably something that you've seen more of with your work at Future 500, uh, mm -hmm. working with larger multinational Fortune 500 companies to kind of come together and, and create some solutions for that. I know you are an advocate for technology as being a mm -hmm. way that we can solve some of these problems. And maybe you can yeah. just speak a little bit about that, about where technology comes into this and innovation and maybe the opportunity that climate change presents. Um, yes, so yes. Get around some of these. Op some of these it's a great, great problems. question. Yeah. yeah the, the, the thing about innovation is that it's so innovative. It's new. <laughs> you know, innovation is about things that are new and unexpected. Uh, so it, when you have folks who analyze, for example, what's the future of our carbon footprint? Uh, you, you look at the models from uh, MIT or from Princeton and, and elsewhere, and they don't really account for the effects of innovation because innovative change, truly innovative change is nonlinear. Uh, uh, it can't be predicted. And they need to limit themselves as careful scientists to what is real in the world right now and, what's, uh, and, and what will come from that. But if anything is true about uh, the world in the last uh, couple of centuries is that uh, it changes. Uh, the world is changing. Now, we're all looking for the, the breakthrough, radical breakthrough energy technology that uh, is uh, zero carbon and practically free. You know, that's, that's kind of what that's everybody's great. looking for. And, well, we need that. We need zero carbon and practically free. Uh, what, what I see as the real potential is that's not gonna happen. Not an energy or a fuel source, but we have the substitute for that already in place. And it's right here, you know, where I live, where you live in the broad Silicon Valley uh, and in the digital technologies that we have created. Now we're all suffering from COVID right now. And the, the dark side of COVID is, is, is clear, but the positive side of having been compelled to stay indoors more uh, uh, and uh, connect digitally as we're doing right now has been that we're making more use of digital technology. We are driving down our carbon footprint. We're learning how to engage with each other without flying in airplanes. We're learning how to get things done without driving. Uh, we're radically reducing in some ways uh, uh, the, the ways that we get things done, uh, reducing the carbon footprint. Uh, the potential of a world where we're able to live locally and connect globally using digital communications is an extraordinary potential change for us. My family and I spent uh, 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 several weeks in yurts in Mongolia this last year where wow. people are living, you know, very traditional lives plus cell phones, plus solar, solar energy. And they're, they're, you know, living traditional lives in, uh, in balance with nature in local communities where people love each other and actually, you know, engage with each other and, and they get the benefits of global communications and solar energy. And what a tremendous potential there is for that. Right now, we're in a, we're in a culture that is addicted to consumption, addicted to consumerism, addicted to stuff. Uh, we're desperately looking for a sense of connection with each other and with the planet uh, to provide the, you know, the satisfaction that we're looking for. I think we have, you know, a path to follow, and it's a path of cultural change. It's a path of cultural innovation. Uh, 
So that's the, you know, it's kind of a long answer, but that's what I see the potential for in innovation. It's not just coming up with a, a cleaner uh, a system of delivering natural gas. That's a part of it, but it really is more fundamental than that. It's, it's changing out this uh, uh, corrupted culture of consumerism uh, for one uh, of connection. Uh, and that can, you know, functionally radically reduce our carbon footprint, but more important, it can give us better lives. Absolutely. I mean, speaking about more technological innovation, not necessarily the cultural innovation part, which is definitely very relevant, but um, you discuss in your book, the soft path and the hard mm -hmm. path. And yeah. this, this kind of soft path that, um, that could have more in technological innovation and could find some more solutions. Um, mm -hmm. But you discuss kind of the problems that polarization presents to going down that soft path. Um, yes. Maybe you could speak a little bit about those, the hard and the soft path, how you, how you frame that um, yeah. and how we kind of yeah. overcome that. Yeah. Well, our, our, our political process really, uh, overemphasizes hard path solutions and many times hard path non-solutions to problems because oddly it fits very well with a system where our rhetoric is controlled by polarizers but our policy is controlled by vested interests. Uh, polarizers tend to think that their objectives are so important that people should sacrifice all uh, for them. Uh, in other words, to be virtuous you got to be willing to, to pay the price. It's got to be harder, cost more, and so on. So there's a tendency in the, in the environmental community to say, you know, we, we've got to save the planet no matter what it costs. That's music to the ears of vested interests. Oh, no matter what it costs? Well, let's see how, you know, how I can get these costs going. So we end up inadvertently uh, creating a situation where vested interests create very expensive ways to deal with problems and then are able to generate support from polarizers and from you know vested interest groups to get the solutions to happen. Give, give you an example. And we talk about putting a price on carbon. Well, you don't have to put a price on carbon uh, uh, you know, and make it a new cost. If we eliminated uh, uh, income taxes on small business, and we eliminated payroll taxes, uh, uh, employee side payroll taxes on everybody, we could replace that with an $85 a ton carbon tax. That's 85 cents per gallon of gas. It's, it's within the range that gas kind of fluctuates you know, all the time. We could eliminate those two taxes and replace them with a tax on carbon. And uh, taxes on carbon have the advantage of going down with time because our carbon emissions are going down, especially if we start to tax them. So a lot of things get a lot better if we do that, but you can't pass that. Why can't you pass a revenue neutral carbon tax like that? Well, because there's no money in it for vested interests uh, along the legislative pathway. Uh, there's no money in it for the political industry that profits from the money that it extracts from vested interests. Uh, so you can't pass it. So, you know, 10 years ago, we almost passed, well, we didn't really almost pass, but we tried desperately to pass a cap and trade bill that would have been a half trillion dollar a year, uh, you know, imposition of new costs on the economy. Uh, and it was a cap and trade bill that in concept could have been great, 
but in reality was a subsidy to the coal industry and others, because that's the only way you could get it through Congress was to, was to subsidize a series of industries and actually delay the time uh, when we would begin to reduce carbon emissions. Uh, but we all you know, got in line and we supported it because it's the best, the best we can get. Well, that's, you know, to use a technical term, bullshit. Uh, you know, we, you know, uh, the best policies come when we can get the best ideas from the right and the left uh, together. And we don't have to suffer uh, for having a better life. We do have to have some discipline uh, uh, and discipline, you know, it's work, but it leads to, uh, to less work and to, you know, more enjoyment in life. So we've got to be disciplined to actually advance solutions that work. And those solutions need to be adaptive. And using prices and using technology, uh, the soft path uh, is much less expensive and much more effective than the hard path of uh, issuing mandates and requirements that, sh that uh, push a lot of money into a set of vested interests, uh, but don't necessarily get the job done as well mention, you know, having the best solutions in place that maybe don't necessarily fit into convenient mm -hmm. paradigms that we've, that we mm -hmm. already have and kind of innovating yeah. around that. And I think at Berkeley Earth, we see one of the ways that we can support a broad range of potential innovative solutions is by mm -hmm. offering data and data that's independent, that's free of agenda, that where we just want to offer, this is what the data says. And I think maybe you could speak a little bit to the role that data, you've mentioned some MIT studies and things like that. What is the role that the actual data plays, you know, in, in solving some of these problems? Yeah, well, data, data when data it, it comes from sources that are uh, reliable and, and, and not uh, using the data to prove a point, uh, but uh, developing points, you know, that reflect the data. Data is fundamental to doing this, to doing our solutions right. Uh, we can wing it, uh, and, and that's pretty much what we do in politics. We wing it. We identify what uh, certain, you know, vested interest groups will support and what people like, and we do that. Uh, uh, you know, if the voters will like it in the end and they won't vote against me, uh, and this big vested interest will be happy, then I'll do that. So what do we want to do nationally uh, to deal with climate? Well, you know, everybody likes uh, uh, solar and wind. So we'll throw, you know, throw more money to solar and wind. That's pretty much, you know, everybody can go for that. But I'm for that. I like that. You know, let's get more solar and wind. Uh, throw more money at nuclear power. Uh, uh, you know, well, that might work. It's pretty expensive, but, uh, uh, but it might work. Uh, throw more money at carbon sequestration and, and uh, so on. Uh, because whenever you're throwing more money, there's vested interests, they're catching it. And, and they toss some of it back to the political industry to get it, get it through. Well, those kinds of steps are not going to, are not going to save climate. They are part of the solution, but they are not a comprehensive solution. Data is what shows us how to actually solve the problem. When you use the data that Berkeley Earth uh, has come forward with, when you use the data that MIT has come forward with, and, and the um, uh, uh, Stanford University and, um, and Princeton and so on, when you use that data, you find that a very few uh, core steps 
taken together can solve this problem. And you have in front of you a policy set uh, with a lot of varieties to it to coalesce around. That's what Berkeley Earth enables us to do, to make rational decisions to get to saving the planet. Now, a big part of it is that it's not focused entirely just on climate. Climate is, uh, climate is a system, of course, that, uh, that we need to protect for our lives to, uh, to continue. But climate is part of a broad global ecosystem, forests, oceans, uh, uh, climate, uh, human uh, communities, and so on. Uh, all of that is what we need to protect. And air pollution, water pollution, some of the fundamentals uh, are the core indicators of whether we are healthy right now or not. And that's what Berkeley Earth comes forward with is the data on those to let us know what we, you know, what's our current situation and then what can we do to make it better. Yeah, we just last month um, in the middle of January or so did publish our annual report for, on temperatures for 2020. And our analysis was pretty much in line with the other major temperature reporting organizations we determined that 2020 was the second warmest year on record, almost mm -hmm. effectively tied with 2016 for the warmest. So mm -hmm. that was kind of our uh, our presentation of the data that we're mm -hmm. of the of the state that we're currently under as the only independent organization that does publish those temperature reports. So mm -hmm. um, we do try and just give a snapshot of what's going on, just looking at the data um, mm -hmm. and our independent analysis. So. And that's, that's been very important because, as you know, there's a whole psychology, you know, on the right that has that has eroded some uh, that denies that climate change is real uh, uh, and that it's human caused. Uh, and the work that Berkeley Earth has done as uh, uh, as uh, folks who don't have a stake in the outcome uh, aren't funded to to reinforce uh, outcomes that others have come forward with, uh, that's done a tremendous amount to increase the credibility on the right that climate change is real and human caused. Uh, uh, without Berkeley Earth, uh, uh, we would be naked <laughs> of, of sources that are truly independent and we would be more vulnerable to the, the ever-present you know, accusations that, well, all these scientists, they're all paid by the same, you know, grant givers uh, to come up with the same solutions. And that's why we can dismiss the entire, the entire uh, set of data. Absolutely. And you perfectly answered my last question uh, without me having to ask it, um, mm -hmm. which was going to be about that denialism. And one of Berkeley Earth's um, original publications, I guess you could call it, once mm -hmm. the original form of the temperature data set was compiled, that first mm -hmm. independent investigation into temperature trends, we published the Skeptic's Guide to Climate Change, which is available on our website, where we have attempted to break down some of the common objections and common questions and skepticism, I guess you could say, around climate change um, mm -hmm. to try and overcome some of that denialism. Um, that's yeah. going on. That, that yeah. And to, at the same time, to respect skepticism as a legitimate uh, part of the scientific method. Uh, being skeptical, challenging the data. Certainly in this day and age, we should be aware of how important it is to challenge uh, conventional wisdom. 
since we all, you know, live in these two worlds, you know, of, of two very different uh, sets of conventional wisdom, uh, both of them uh, highly corrupted, uh, we all have to be skeptical of what we're hearing and what we're seeing, and we all have to, uh, to challenge the truth. So it is, being a climate skeptic is not a bad thing. Being a climate denier, that's, you know, head in the sand uh, or, or worse. But a climate skeptic is, is, uh, is someone that can make the science stronger and the commitment more real. Well, I will ask my last question here. If people want to get involved within this together, what, what can they do? How can they do it? Um, if this sounds like more of something that people want to be engaged in and they want to be problem solvers, not yeah. polarizers, where can they go? What can they yeah. do? Well, first, first thing you do is you go to the to the to the most massive uh, you know c uh, consumption machine on the planet that is Amazon, <laughs> and you buy our book okay. uh, uh, in Kindle form, uh, so that uh, you have a zero carbon footprint, or in written form if you like to write you know thumb through the pages. It's five 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 bucks, uh, and uh, uh, you should be able to pick that up. And then come to our site in this togetheramerica.org and sign up, uh, sign our Declaration of Inter Interdependence, uh, which signifies that we believe that whether we're Republicans or Democrats or capitalists or activists, we're all in this world together. We're all on the planet together. Uh, our natures, there's a reason for our differences. Our diversity is what makes us powerful. Our diversity is what gives us the potential to change the world. Uh, it always has and it always will. As long as we're isolated, things are going to get worse. Uh, but once we get together, uh, we can make them a lot better. So join with us, come to the website, get the book, read the book, talk to your friends, get them involved too. You can help support Berkeley Earth's independent climate science. Visit donate.berkeleyearth.org to make your tax-deductible donation today. Thank you for listening and for supporting Berkeley Earth.